What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Raw and Relentless. Today, we got a very uh, interesting guest because he's someone that's a little bit outside of the norm from what I've uh, the guests that I brought on in the past. But I think you guys will get a lot of value out of this, um, mostly because I would say <laughs> what he does is very interesting. Not only is he a professional poker player, but he's also a pro, uh, um, you know an expert mindset coach for pro poker pro poker players. Um, there's a lot of P's in that. So the alliteration, but welcome James Wittet to the podcast. Did I say that right? Yeah, you did. You nailed it. Um, the P's got you tripped up, but my last name was no problem. So good job. <laughs> uh, what's up guys. I'm James and yeah, I'm a professional poker player for a little over a decade and, uh, also a mindset coach for, uh, high stakes poker players. So pretty cool. I think <laughs> that's awesome. What do you consider as high stakes when it comes to poker? Cause when I play poker, I'm betting like 20 bucks, you know, small stuff. I mean, I, I actually try to reach people at all levels. It's just in, in different distribution methods, right? Like I make loads of free content on my Instagram. Uh, I have a video course, uh, I do group coaching and then I do like one-on-one -on -one coaching. So I've worked with like jungle man who you might've seen on television before he's, you know, played a single hand of poker for a million dollars. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've never played a hand of poker for a million dollars, but I've Was this seen a cash like, game. Yeah, like there's this sick hand where he calls down Tony G and gets shown the nuts and like, uh, you know, 700,000 euro pot. And he's just like, oh, okay, yes, trip fours, I lose, you know? And um, it's, you know, there's a lot of guys playing at this level and it's really exciting to watch. So it's great for me as an opportunity to work with some of these guys because they're all smarter than me. And, you know, when you get to hang out with people really smart, you, you know, you pick up a lot, you learn a lot. Uh, I try to, you know, I don't mind being the dumbest person in the room. I find that fun sometimes. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I work with people at all different levels and different capacities. Let's see. Do you feel like poker is one of those games where just like boxing or basketball or like any technical sport, there's literally levels to this stuff? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, you totally can tell someone's mindset level and then predict their success by hearing them talk or observing their, you know, chat. It's like, think about who you know in the world who has like the worst mindset ever. It's like Facebook comments or like YouTube comments, you know, uh, and you can kind of extrapolate just by observing people. You can see where they're at and where you can kind of plot their trajectory. But with poker, the sick thing is there's like a lot of luck, especially in the short run and in tournaments. So you do get guys who, you know, vastly outperform their mindset, you know, because like they get fortunate. And then you also have guys who, take longer to reach the trajectory that would make sense for them and they can struggle a lot. And I work with those guys too. Mm. Do you feel like, um, what do you feel like is most important to poker success skill or mindset? Uh, I think you need both, right? Um, like in the micro sense, like skill, you need to know the odds, the math. If you're, you know, getting it in as a 40% equity underdog to a guy who's got 60% equity all the time, you're just going to lose. It's like, if you're making bad investments, you're going to lose where mindset comes in is more of this like macro level of, you know, a guy with a poor mindset might grind poker day in and day out of the casino for two years and, and build up his bankroll but then punt it all in on Dogecoin at 70 cents a coin, you know, like people with a bad mindset find ways to get wrecked and waste all their progress. So I think mindset is like, it's kind of really important for not uh, self-destructing and imploding. And also for, you know, getting those things that can help you either improve faster or like leg up, you know, improving your network, improving the, 
you know, game selection, like these kind of out of the box things that are often the low hanging fruit with the higher rewards. And I think that's similar in every industry, right? If you don't have the technicals, well, you're just going to go nowhere. But once you've got the technicals, you know, network and mindset is what's really going to set you apart. Mm. So when you have the mindset, is it, does it really come down to being able to control your emotions or is it like being confident in yourself or is it more of like the mindset of knowing how to invest and when to hold them and when to fold them? Well, I think all the things you mentioned are important, right? And if we want to house those all under the term mindset and not is kind of semantics, but everything you just said is, you know, going to be very important. Managing your emotions. This is a situation like a lot of people, when they get emotional, they can't think logically. And, you know, you see this in arguments between men and women all the time, you know, one person gets emotional and now, you know, it just, it spirals because they can't reach common ground. And for poker players, if you get emotional, like the most typical thing you see is a guy, you know, the river card comes and you know, you lose and you didn't want to lose. So you're angry. So what do you do? All right, I call. It makes no sense. You know, it's like, you, you know, that you should fold now because you just like your hands probably not good anymore. But because you're mad that that happened, you compound the mistake by like calling and like making sure you get shown the nuts. And then you're like, yeah, damn it. And this is, um, you know, this is the most kind of trivial example. But obviously, if your emotions cause you to play, it doesn't matter how good you are. If you play really poorly relative to what you're capable for, whenever your emotions get activated. Mm. So it, don't they call that in poker, uh, you're on tilt or this guy's on full tilt or something like that? Yeah, uh, that actually comes from like a pinball mas- machine. Like if you were playing pinball and the ball would get stuck in one of these little flippers, the guy would like literally lift up half the machine and dump it to kind of try to unstick the ball. This is where this notion of tilt comes from that you're just, you know, we could say on monkey tilt, on full blown tilt, you know, it's just when you're off your game. And, you know, mm. we extend this to life. We'll look at somebody say, oh, this guy's on life tilt or, you know what I mean? When, when people are off their game in any situation, uh, as poker players, we like to use this word, like, oh, I'm super tilted today. Mm. That's an interesting way to put it. Like, it's uh, it's almost like the moment you give it a name, you almost have power over it. Do you feel that too? Yeah, I mean, what you resist persists, right? It's Eckhart Tolle or maybe it's Buddha, but it's very true. Like, when you're trying not to be on tilt, you just like compounding your own tilt. When you say, all right, I'm pissed. All of a sudden, it's like a big weight off your shoulders. You're giving yourself permission to feel something. You know, and that can be the true in, in many situations, you know, like admitting to yourself, you're, you're feeling upset or something bothered you and it, you know, then you kind of accepted it and then it's okay, well, what should I do given that that already happened? It's already in the past, but, um, until you've accepted something, you know, especially something unfortunate that you would prefer not to happen, you're still kind of in denial or like wrestling with it. And it just kind of keeps the whole funk going on longer. Mm. So like, do you personally experience getting on tilt? Uh, very often these days, being that this is something that you uh, teach a lot, you know, the insides and outs of the mindset and being on tilt and how to control that. Do you find yourself slipping up still? Yeah, of course. Um, The difference is you learn to correct faster. So you're not, for me, the goal is not to become the robot, you know, the person who doesn't have any feelings. There are kind of two ways to deal with any situation where there's a lot of volatility, whether that's investing, whether it's playing poker, you know, going up and talking to girls or whatever, anything where you're not sure what the result's gonna be. One is to completely just numb out. Like whatever I do, I don't care. And 
I don't personally think that's like the only solution that can work or necessarily the best one. A lot of people end up kind of not enjoying their life when they teach themselves to numb out to everything. The other solution is to get super present with what you feel and be able to navigate that and for it to be okay. So like you lose a pot of the poker table, something doesn't go your way. And you're like, oh, wow, like I feel upset by that. Like I, I, I didn't get what I wanted. Like, okay. And, you know, and like just allowing yourself to feel whatever you feel, but then like don't make stupid decisions as a result. Uh, I think acknowledging your feelings, there's a lot of power and strength to be found in that and not being afraid of your feelings or letting your feelings navigate and, you know, dictate your life. Mm. Do you feel like it's, it's a completely natural part of the process? Like, I guess going on tilt, like, but just in life, you said it extends to your life. This guy's on life tilt. Do you feel like it's natural, you know, almost like they say the entrepreneurial roller coaster that you're going to have those highs and you're definitely going to have those lows? Or do you feel like if someone can hypothetically get their life in order and get the systems in place, it's almost always like an upwards trajectory? What, what are your kind of thoughts on that? That's a really good question. So I, I do think that we all have kind of historical feelings around certain kind of issues, like not feeling chosen, not getting what we want, feeling like life's unfair against us, feeling like injustice. You know, a lot of people in the poker table, if they got bullied a lot in school, when somebody is like raising their blinds every hand, they, they feel that same anger, you know, that like wanting to fight back. Or when they get unlucky, they feel that same injustice of when like their dad left when they were a kid, like stuff like this that they, is not intuitive or obvious but we all have like a story around certain emotions. So poker, um, if you choose, can give you the opportunity to actually work through that stuff. And yes, I definitely think you can get to a place in your own kind of self uh, actualization and self healing where you don't have those um, triggers anymore that you're not understanding and you're able to like, okay, my, you know, my injustice is being triggered a little bit. That's okay. Like, and you kind of, it doesn't, tilt you so much anymore you know you feel it you accept it and then you move through it very quickly like almost instantaneously and when that happens you do get to that point where life's just getting better and better because you've trained your mind for more gratitude more appreciation faster acceptance less resistance so you feel better sooner and quicker and when things happen that make you feel poorly you course correct and you know move through it faster so your lows aren't as low and your highs are much higher um, I think most people in life, uh, entrepreneurs, especially who kind of thrust themselves into a very uncertain world, will feel some intense lows. I know I sure did like the beginning of my career and I can say, I still have downs relative to my baseline, but my baseline's way, way higher than it was six, seven years ago. So I'm getting happier, uh, which is great. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I feel like, um, you know, before we hopped on, on this podcast today, I, I ch literally checked out your website and I read through the, some of the copy and I'm like, dang. <laughs> even if I don't play poker, this copy like applies to some of those times where I've been in those low moments or like having a down in my, you know, personal life or business life, even though I'm not actively playing poker. Um, and, and what's interesting to me, like, is like, I used to play a lot of poker back when I was in high school. So I kind of relate to some of what you're saying, but it, what, what really interested me was like, man, like a lot of this stuff really does uh, extend out of poker and into life, into business and things like that. Um, and I wonder, like, did you write the copy on that, that page yourself? Yeah, I did. That's awesome. Uh, did, were you kind of drawing from your own personal experiences when you're speaking to those pain points? And, you know, if so, 
uh, what, like, do you mind going into what are some of those low moments that kind of inspired you on the path that you're on now? No, for sure. I'm happy to talk about it. I think uh, whenever you're talking with coaches or mentors or, you know, people that um, you could learn from, it's a big skill to be able to learn from someone else's lived experience. And the big reason that I do what I do is to try to save other people from any of the kind of pain I had to go through or like, you know, make other people's journey objectively better because they have been able to learn something from me rather than having to learn it for yourself. And I still struggle with my ego to this day to learn things from other people much smarter than me so that I don't have to, you know, get wrecked, whether it's emotionally or financially or whatever. So yeah, and anything I can share. Uh, so my personal development journey um, kind of started maybe six, seven years ago. I, I went through a difficult breakup. And uh, after the breakup, I found myself in a spot I didn't really expect where I was like really, really unhappy. And um, it's so crazy to think back, that, like to my mindset back then, because I mean, like, it's so just nuts to me how miserable I could have been and how depressed and how like much of a victim I didn't even realize I was, you know, I, I just, I was really unhappy every day that I woke up and I didn't know how to like make it better. So I started, you know, meditating and going to the gym and, and reading books. I read like maybe 300 books in that like two year time period. I went and I saw Tony Robbins. I went and did ayahuasca. Like I, I did everything you could do to try to like solve it. Cause the one thing I knew was this shit is my fault. You know, like relationships end, but like being that depressed is not normal. And I learned lots of stuff about my past, like my, you know, childhood attachment profile for relationships, which is super helpful. There was just so much stuff I didn't know about psychology, about mindset, about myself, because I'd spent so much time, you know, studying poker, studying numbers, how to make money. And then here I was, you know, living in a really nice apartment, making, you know, 10, 20 K a month. I wasn't fucking happy, you know? And uh, I hadn't been happy in my relationship either for like a good long time. So I had to look at like my self-esteem. I had to look at where my origins of my self-esteem were coming from. Uh, Six Pillars of Self-Esteem, really fantastic book. Reread The Power of Now, you know, they just got on this path and, um, you know, it took some time, but it's amazing to me to look back at like where I was and where I am now. Cause like, Bro, I was not somebody you, you wanted to hang out with. I was having a pity for, party for myself like every day of the week. And, uh, you know, now my life is just very radically different. Mm. Well, what was the moment that you realized, oh, shit, I'm, I'm just like in a really bad spot? Like, because it's almost like, you know, I'm, I'm relatively new to like, I guess, depression, anxiety, stress. Like, these are things that have been that I've experienced since I, my business actually, ironically, since my business started getting money and taking off was when I started having those intense highs, but also the intense lows. And it's almost like the higher the high, sometimes the lower the low. Like if you have a really good, you know, like uh, every month you're doing really good revenue and then one month it's bad. And then the next month it's kind of, eh, you know, then you get into really low and you like, like you said, you almost like for me, I was self-aware that it's just a number on a screen that's affecting my mood. But then that's like a slippery slope, like you said, to having a pity party on yourself. And, you know, luckily, like, because, you know, I'm a coach as well, I'm able to recognize these patterns in myself when they arise. But I'm also uh, not afraid to admit that sometimes it's hard for me to come out of it, even though I consciously know about it. So like, what was the moment for you if there was one, like, where you had that moment of realization? Was there one for you? 
it was actually like in Peru when I, I went, I, I did do ayahuasca and I was like sitting there and I, I kind of saw this habitual pattern that I had basically thought my way into being depressed. Like every time things went badly, I would start to worry, like maybe they're going to stay bad. And then I would like feed it. And I, I could see my mind, like the neurons in my brain, like as if like threading a needle, like making a sweater. I could see the way I'd like kind of stitched myself into a negative way of perceiving the world in my relationships, in my self-image. Um, and there was a few transitory moments for me. Like another one was just looking in the, uh, in the mirror in my apartment and catching, you know, like sometimes you catch a thought. I thought something like super negative toward myself when I looked in the mirror. And I was just like, it was like if you overheard somebody talk to like one of your best friends or talk to your, you know, girlfriend or somebody and they said something horrible and you'd be like, yo, what the fuck? Like, don't talk to my, friend. I hope I can swear. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, yo, I swear don't all the time. Don't talk to them like that. You know, it's like, I heard myself say something like that to me. And then I had this thought and I was like, man, what would life be like for a person if every other variable in their life was the same? But when they looked in the mirror, they were like, you're fucking awesome, man. You got this today. And I realized just the extent to which I hadn't like been on my own team. I hadn't been like my own supporter, building myself up. Um, I've been getting validation from other things, you know, from poker results, uh, from like, you know, how attractive my girlfriend was, like, you know, stupid, shallow stuff that I was like, not even aware was something that was kind of driving me as like a young guy in like early 20s and stuff like this, like 23, 24, 25. So getting over that and realizing that uh, I think it's Tom Billy that says that self-esteem is like the, uh, the way you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. Um, and I think that there are a few things in life that are more important than that. Like if you just sit by yourself and in like a restaurant or in like, you know, I, I go to the roof of my building sometimes, you got like a pool up there and just sit and watch the sunset. And it's like, feel good to be you and be alive. You can't put a price on that, you know? So, um, knowing that that's the metric that matters and then optimizing for that. So if, you know, if your business is, you know, your revenue numbers are getting you down about your life, you go into this emotional spiral, like it's okay to care about your business, but like, would you still love yourself if your business failed? You know, or is there like an angry guy in your head waiting to come out and tell you how shit you are, you know, and learning to kind of, not listen to the voice in your head. I mean, that's a big one too. I don't know if you've read uh, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer or Eckhart Tolle's The Power Now. Both those books kind of help you realize that that voice in your head, that one that I saw in the mirror, you know, telling me I look ugly or whatever it was, like that's not real. That's not the truth. And, and learning to understand that the voice in your head is something you can condition. Like you can train the voice in your head to speak differently, or you can train yourself to ignore it when it speaks a certain kind of way. And there was so much power in that and realizing you don't have to believe everything you think. Mm. Mm. I have not read those books. Um, I think I have the power of now. Um, I've, I'll be honest, like maybe it's the ADHD within me, but I feel like I don't, it's rare that I finish a book from cover to cover. Um, unless I, it's like on audio, right? So like, it, I guess, for me, it, it always feels like a chore when I have to sit down and open a book. Um, and maybe that's just the association I have with the act of doing that. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess, yeah, that sounds very intriguing to me. Like sometimes I find myself attaching my identity to 
the thoughts in my head and those thoughts, you know, are just responses to emotions I'm feeling in the moment. And, um, sometimes it is hard to become aware of those things. It's like, uh, I think the trap, at least from my experience and, and what I've seen in other people too, is like, it's like that phrase, you know, how do you boil a frog? You put them in cold water and then turn the heat up slowly. I think some people, like you said, they kind of stitch themselves into that trap and they don't even realize it until it's until it reaches a breaking point. Right. So, and man, this is like very interesting to me. Um, so how did, how did your realization of that kind of parlay into you deciding to coach poker players on mindset? That's a great question. Uh, I do want to come back to, uh, okay. what you said about the ADHD and the books and stuff, but, uh, we can diverge from it. Yeah. Just from my, um, cause I also, you know, have a space cadet brain sometimes I'll forget, but, uh, yeah, I mean, after I, kind of solve this and I don't want to call it like a spiritual awakening or whatever because it's such an airy fairy term but it was some sort of like real lasting change that I went through you know I went through a really really painful time like six months you know really really painful time every day and then when I started coming out of it I was like holy shit like first of all I didn't know that could happen like I was I thought I was pretty normal you know I have pretty cool life you know I'm traveling the world and playing poker like I didn't think I could get like you know suicide watch for six months not really but you know like that's how it felt um, so to, to realize I could go through that, I was like, whoa, like that's some, it, it kind of puts things in perspective. Like that was a really real and raw thing that like made me feel feelings on a level I hadn't felt in a long time, you know? And when I came out of it, I felt the positive emotions on a level I hadn't felt in a long time. And that's why I'm so kind of in favor of learning to navigate emotions and against learning to numb them out. Cause there's, those are the two strategies. You know, if you're playing high stakes poker and you're going to lose or win 10, 20 K in a day, and you don't want to feel it. Well, then you can either learn to be okay with loss and teach yourself that lesson. So it doesn't matter when it happens, you can kind of get through it quickly or you can numb out. But then at the end of your sessions, you're this like zombie and you can't like, you know, you go out to dinner with your friends and you're not there present, you know? So, uh, I just realized that the things in my life that I had been working toward wouldn't make me happy if I didn't solve this. And I knew that that was going to be the same for a lot of other people. You know, it's, it's not unique to poker, but it's definitely, um, you know, it comes out more with things with a lot of money at stake. So sales, marketing, uh, trading, poker, any, anything where you can make and lose a lot of money, it, you know, to, to get okay with that and that volatility, you're either going to have to numb out or learn to manage some emotions. And if you choose numb out, you know, this is where the, you know, the, the vices come from, you know what I mean? This is where the, the stereotypical vices that, you know, people who make a lot of money will, will fall to. This is why they're trying to wake themselves back up from the sleep they put themselves in to deal with the stress of their life so I, I just knew i had a lot to give that was unique after going through this experience you know if i play poker right i'm a member of the poker community i play poker i make some amount of money per hour i don't know you know a few hundred dollars per hour and that's cool i can play poker and make that money there's not i'm not providing a ton of value i'm providing the value that like other people can play against me whatever maybe i'm having some fun if i have a unique set of skills to help people traverse this thing that's like this unexpected you know un ununderstood monster that's like can really uh destroy your happiness like if i have the skills to kind of to help somebody else have the benefits of doing you know like an ayahuasca ceremony without having to fly to the jungle and you know go through that whole thing if i can help somebody kind of get to that point of presence of emotional like flexibility that's like a really valuable skill. That's something a lot of people could benefit from. So I, I just saw that there was, I guess it started out as sort of like a, I don't say humanitarian, but like 
really kind of when you go through something like that from being very self-interested to like realizing that the more you focus on yourself, the more unhappy you're going to be, you tend to become like really interested in helping people. And then in the beginning, you're trying to help everybody and you're not like really making sure you get paid for it. You're like this bleeding heart who just wants to save the world. And then at some point, you know, you kind of find your way back to center and you find a way to both help people and do something that you, you know, feel amazing about and also make it a profitable business and do well for yourself. Because when you, you know, pour from an empty cup, that gets exhausting. But if you fill up your own cup, then you're in a better position to help the people who uh, are listening to you. Mm, that's powerful. Um, so it, it, for you at the time, it just made the most logical sense to um, go into poker because that was like a big part of your life at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's who I knew, right? Like I lived in poker houses all over the world. I, I, I was, um, I've been in poker communities all over the world because I used to live in the US, right? And then in 2011, the US kind of banned online poker. Uh, it's kind of fine now in some states, but at that time I needed to leave the US to continue my career. Now I don't even really play that much poker, but I'm so used to living outside the U.S. that I just, you know, I'm here in Mexico now. I travel around. But um, I knew so many poker players from like taking on that life. So that was like the logical place to start. And, you know, now I work with poker players. I work with entrepreneurs. I work with people in crypto, traders and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of built from that network because those are the people I'm, you know, best suited to help. Like people who've dealt with a lot of variants and stuff like this in their life. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so what, what was the the point you wanted to say about the the reading and books and sitting down in ADHD? Oh, so I've probably read like, I don't know, six, 700 books in the last like five, six years. Of those, less than 10 have been like a paperback. 950 or sorry, 690 have been audiobooks. Uh, it's not cheating, you know, it's, uh, it's allowed. There's different kinds of learners, you know, auditory, visual, and like some other one. But um, yeah, for me personally, audiobooks is the jam. I read most of my books while like riding my bike through the park with the headphones in, you know, and just like riding around and listening to books. And for me, this was uh, my preferred way. And uh, I was curious, you mentioned like a little bit, um, like feeling like you're too ADHD to read a book. Is that something like you had a diagnosis for, you take medicine for, or is that something you open to talking about? Yeah, uh, I'm pretty much an open book. I feel like there's a whole, I, I'm more surprised if there's something that I haven't talked about online somewhere. So um, uh, yeah, I, I have been prescribed uh, ADHD, Adderall for it. I do take it, I don't take it every day, um, but I got the the prescription as a, as an adult. So this was, uh, a couple of years ago that I got, I got that diagnosis. Um, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like sometimes there are things that I can sit down and intensely focus on, but what I've realized and ironically, I realized this while on a mushroom trip. So I haven't done ayahuasca, but I have taken, taken like psilocybin mushrooms. Um, I realized that a lot of times my ADHD will manifest itself for lack of a better term um, in the, in the sense that it's, it's hard for me to actually get sat down and into the thing. But once I'm in it, I tend to be able to focus on it. If I have like a strong motivation behind like why this thing needs to get done. Um, yeah. If I don't have a deadline, if I don't have like clarity on why this needs to get done or what, what exactly the role, this thing that I'm working on will play for me. Um, then I tend to procrastinate even getting started in the first place. And like the realization I had, um, I went into this mushroom trip with the intention of, 
I wanted to figure out what my blind spot was so I could unleash the the, the giant within, as as Tony Robbins would say, right? And, and the one of the major realizations that I got, and ironically that that night I was like beating myself up about it, was I I constantly am talking about Kate, like my she's my girlfriend. Kate, don't bother me. I'm I'm getting to work. I'm I'm working. I'm working. But it's always I'm like in a constant state of I'm sitting down getting ready to work for like two hours, and by the time two hours are gone, I like haven't done anything, and I'm I've that's been a pattern of mine that I, that I realized while on mushrooms. And so, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, that was a diagnosis I got in the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I don't know how deep you want to go into this topic. Let's go uh, real deep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I got a diagnosis for ADHD too. I took Adderall for six years. Um, okay. I, um, and like for me, you know, I also kind of started as an adult. It wasn't like I wasn't prescribed this as a kid or whatever. I, uh, a friend of mine in college had it and I tried one and I was like, oh my God, school is easy. You know what I mean? Like I, I was doing fine at school. I was just a super degen about my approach. Like I would go to the library the night before and like try to learn everything. I was never good at like doing work ahead of time, being on a schedule. I, I would just, you know, kind of do everything in a disorganized way because I could manage it. And, uh, you know, Adderall just made it even easier to do that. You can go to the library and just stay up all night and learn the entire lecture, you know, the entire curriculum and then just take the test, regurgitate it and then pass. So yeah. I did this for a while. And then after college, I stopped. And then when I started playing poker, I was doing fine. You know, I was winning at poker and stuff, but I was like, hmm, I wonder if I could do better, perform more if I got back on Adderall. So I went and like, you know, got my prescription or whatever. And, uh, you know, it was working pretty fine for me when I would take it once in a while. I'd take it like every other day or something or like three times a week. But then I had this doctor in Vegas who told me like I should be careful to take it like every day because if I don't, I'm like giving my brain mixed signals. Personally, I think it's really horrific advice. I mean, I'm obviously not a doctor, but like, it, you know, I, I think it has kind of a neurotoxic effect on your like on your brain. Like, I think it like uh, mm. dampens your neuron sensitivity. So I think that was when I noticed a shift. Like when I started taking it daily, my tolerance went massively up and my performance when I took it went massively down. And then when I, when that time came and it, I had to leave the U.S., Adderall at the time wasn't prescribed outside of the U.S. Like it was a schedule one controlled substance in Australia where I went to live. So I had like my little jar with me of like 270 pills or whatever, but I kind of knew when those were done, it'd be really hard to get more. And this was actually the make or break moment where I was like, fuck, I got to learn to meditate or something. Cause like, I can't, I, I had like gotten worse at focus basically. And, and the thing I found with Adderall is that, like you said, it's, it makes it really easy to do stuff you don't want to do. When I, I used to take Adderall when I worked at Subway when I was a teenager and bro, I would like, I would organize the salami, pepperoni and ham for like the Italian meat subs, like get them ready, like 20 in advance. So you can just grab, like I would clean everything. It makes you really good at doing that stuff you otherwise don't want to do. If you have a list of errands, you're going to drive cross country because it gives you dopamine. And when you have dopamine, you can do shit that sucks. But the, the way I look at it now is that your brain is kind of guiding you to do the things that you want to do, you know, and, and it's difficult to do things that maybe you don't need to be doing, right? Like, I don't want to hop myself up on stimulants to do things that I, you know, should probably delegate to my assistant. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and that's like a, that's like a thing that happens when you take Adderall is you just start doing those little things. Well, I think it's important, you know, 
if I was going to use Adderall, I would have a clear intention beforehand of what I was going to do during that time, mm -hmm. right? Because it's going to give me a bunch of uh, stimulation. Like when I would take Adderall for poker, it's like I was putting in volume. I'm trying to grind, you know, many, many hours. Um, the thing is what I found was, okay, I get more done on Monday if I take Adderall, but then on Tuesday, I don't get shit done, you know? And I feel lousy. My, I feel depressed. My brain feels down. When I start to add up having all these days of like 150% productivity followed by days of like 20% productivity, I don't get more done in a month. I just, my peaks are higher. I get to feel amazing when I'm on Adderall and I'm doing my stuff and I get to feel really bad when I'm not, which can then again, motivate you to like get going again. It actually creates this cycle of like peaks and valleys. Cause like you, you do a really good job and then you take a break and then you feel really bad about yourself and, and like your progress. And then you're like, all right, well, I'm going to get back on it. And you're constantly like up and down and up and down. And I think like consistent performance is ultimately going to yield higher results. So, um, for me, like learning to meditate, it was a, it was a difficult transition. Um, I had a client recently who I worked with, who was playing 200, 400 poker, like, you know, $40,000 buy-in starting stack. And he was playing like online against Daniel Negreanu, you know, he's playing and, and for him, Daniel Negreanu is the fish, you know, he's like a, a superstar math wizard, you know, and he's, you know, is he not, he's the he's guy's bum. like a genius. Well, he's, my friend is bum hum, hunting. Well, my client was bum hunting Daniel Negreanu. Like he's playing him and he's, he feels like he's got the edge. Right. Uh, but, hmm. and, and he was, what a does guy, bum hunting mean? It's where you like try to play heads up against a guy worse than you. So like, uh, okay. you know, if you, if your friend is not so good at poker and you're pretty good and you challenge him to play one-on-one, -on -one, that's kind of bum hunting. Right. Or if you go on a poker site and you only play against fish and you sit out when the good players sit down, which is a good strategy mm. to be honest. Bum hunting is the most profitable way to play poker. Um, okay. <laughs> but, um, who's a yeah, bum? So, Would I be a bum if I haven't played for several years? <laughs> depends who you're playing against. You're probably not a bum. If you play your girlfriend heads up, if you, if you play me heads up, like perhaps, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I had a client and he had done really, really well in poker, you know, seven figure bankroll, making loads of money, but he'd always done it with Adderall and, uh, he was getting ready to get married, getting ready to have a kid. And, you know, when you take Adderall, sometimes you're staying up till three o'clock in the morning. Sometimes you're waking up, didn't sleep well. Sometimes your mood's really sporadic. So he kind of was afraid that if he got off it, he wouldn't maintain the, like the peak performance. He wouldn't, cause he'd always used it to help him be a crusher. And he had this of mental idea of himself as somebody who needed it you know when you put that label on yourself like oh i have adhd i can't read a book you know it's like this learned helplessness where mm. anytime you could try to focus and try to hone your focus and like get start to actually make a relationship with yourself and your focus you kind of don't because it's difficult and, and like i went through this you know but um i guess the 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 result that he found was by getting off of adderall he was happier you know, like happier day to day. Cause it's more of an, you can have more of like an authentic energy, you know, riding a bike, going outside, smelling the trees, you know, like, and allowing yourself to kind of get into a flow state organically. Uh, whereas Adderall is like, it gives you this dopamine burst. So you can feel like you're in a flow state and do anything and like makes you kind of superhuman, but it's not, uh, you're not really learning how to do it yourself. You know what I mean? And, and then you kind of become dependent because without it, it's very challenging to get stuff done, but then if you use it, it's so easy. So then, you know, it's something you have to make a personal decision about, but uh, hmm. I found that 
the the limitations you you kind of mentioned like with the um, difficulty getting in the present moment or reading a book or kind of like going down some of that path with some of that kind of work it's uh it's not real if that makes sense like the, the limitation you feel is real but it's not mm. true that you can't do that does that make sense yeah that does make a lot of sense um and i i wonder like do you think it the adderall plays a role because of like you know the the chemical i guess imbalance because like you're you're depleting all your dopamine stores and then the next day if you don't take it or if you do you're like burning the the dopamine stores and like you're always kind of low on dopamine do you think that's why it comes followed by like an intense low or you or is it like more of a like you said it's just like you're you're relying on something outside to focus i mean it's speed bro it's like you know prescription speed so i mean it's not it's not quite math you know obviously but i think for it can be a reasonable treatment for people whose brain is like really, really different, I guess, you know, I can understand mm. that there are people, you know, who may have like very severe ADHD and they kind of need something, but uh, I think it's just massively overprescribed. And the, the majority of people who take Adderall probably have that honeymoon experience where like, like 99 times out of a hundred, if someone takes Adderall, they're going to feel like a genius, you know, but yeah, the long-term effect of having a genius pill is actually making yourself like less of a genius and like, not tapping into your natural genius. Like it's very hard to access your intuition on Adderall, you know, cause you, you're very analytical, you know? And if your mind likes to overthink about stuff and really like geek out on like spreadsheets and stuff, it, it becomes easier to get lost in the minor details and miss the kind of big vision or the realization, like how are you going to pivot your business or like, you know, make a big life decision from like many, many thoughts about it. Often that kind of insights come from silence, from like a quiet walk in the park or like sitting with yourself with your journal for 10 minutes and a coffee and kind of like, mm, like that feels right. And it's hard to yeah. get those deeper truths, you know, that kind of come from your heart, come from your soul when you're like taking something that kind of puts more of your awareness in, in the analytical mind and the thinking mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, do, that does make a lot of sense. Um, and, I'll, and I'll be honest, kind of what you're saying does when I relate it to maybe just my mental states in the last couple of years or so, I can definitely see a lot of parallels to where sometimes where I'm like, dang, why am I not performing to where I, I know I could be, even though I feel like I'm, I'm taking Adderall, I'm getting to work. Right. And I think sometimes it does come, like you said, like maybe it is because I don't necessarily have those insights that would naturally come organically. Cause I'm so like in the weeds of like the analytics of everything. Um, so it does make a lot of sense. Uh, how do you, how do you, do you feel the same way about things like marijuana or substances like that? Um, so I'm, I think first of all, substances affect people differently, right? So, um, which substances you take and like, it's going to have a different effect on, on you than me and on somebody else listening. Uh, I'm personally not a huge fan of marijuana because I think that I, uh, I work a lot of poker players. A lot of poker players smoke weed. Most of the time, poker players who smoke weed aren't the, they're like, they reach a certain level, but not more. And it's not always mm. true, but like habitual marijuana smoking is often a way to like tune out emotion. It's to like, it does something that the person doesn't know how to do themselves. Kind of like, you know, take an Adderall to get in like some sort of a flow state, but like you can't really tap into a flow state uh, organically. It's a lot of guys don't know how to manage their emotions at the table. So they just get high, you know, and, and I'm 
it doesn't mean you can't succeed like that. You know, it's just, it has a toll. I have a guy um, in my community who recently won like $775,000. He won the party poker 5K millions main event. And he basically said that quitting smoking weed was like the biggest change he made in his life since um, joining my program because he just established, he made this shift from waking up and getting high and then like, oh, I play poker, my life's easy to waking up and having a morning routine of like an hour of stretching, like push-ups, pull-ups, you know, going for a walk outside, just like kind of getting on a healthier person trajectory. And, and I think like, I don't want to come off as like anti-marijuana, but I do think that um, it's kind of troubling with the legalization, how like cool it's become. Because just because it's like cool and like people in rap videos do it or whatever, and like it's also legal now, doesn't mean it's like something you should do every day. Um, I personally smoked weed when I was really young. I used to play a lot of video games in like middle school and high school and get high. And, you know, for me, it's one of the only drugs that gives me anxiety. So I, I know other people feel a reduced anxiety when they get high, but often that reduced anxiety, it's coming from a reduced blood flow to your brain. So it's not, it's not really the best way to relax necessarily. Um, and you want to avoid a situation where you're like, Adderall to wake me up and then like Ambien or marijuana or something to like calm you down because it's just like you're constantly, you know, pulling levers to try to like get yourself to feel how you want to feel. It's like you believe all the tools are on the outside and I need this. Oh, I need a joint. Oh, I need a pill. Oh, I need a coffee. And you're not ever going to learn about the tools you have on the inside, you know, and, and that inner transmission of energy, that inner ability to feel more happy, feel more energized, you know. I've been getting into a lot of like this Wim Hof stuff, you know, the breathing exercise from Wim Hof doing the ice baths, the cold showers, uh, this kind of approach feels so much more sustainable than, you know, waking up with an Adderall and sleeping with an Ambien. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what the Wim Hof, that's basically like 30 fast breaths. And then is it three, like just breathe in, hold it for as long as you can breathe out, hold it for as long as you can. So it's 30 to 40 breaths and you breathe kind of first into your diaphragm, like into the base of your stomach and then into your chest and uh, almost into your head as well. Like, like fill up and then, and it's just a big deep breath in. So I think I like messed up my camera a second here. Do you All do right. it in through the nose, out through the mouth or what? It doesn't really matter. You know, the, the key is just into the belly, into the chest and then out into the belly, into the chest and then out you do like 30 of those and then you just breathe out and you don't breathe in and you just sit there as long as you can. Maybe it's like 45 seconds, 30 seconds the first time. And what you're doing is you're kind of teaching your body how to control your central nervous system, which you don't normally know how to do. And like for a guy, you know, in a, in a social situation, very often, you know, your body feels like it wants to jump out the window. It'd be really nice if when you were talking to like, you know, the future, you know, Mrs. Patrick James, that you would feel like super comfortable, right? So how do you train your body to relax? Well, putting it in uncomfortable situations, like a cold, a cold shower, for instance, right? You get in a cold shower and your body's like, oh my God, it's cold and you want to jump out. But you're like, no, your mind tells your body it's fine. And, and when you teach yourself to be fine in situations, you're living intentionally instead of reactively. You know, for me personally, when I was in my huge victim phase, I remember trying to get in the cold shower. You know, a lot of my friends around me were doing the cold shower and they're like, yeah, you got to do cold showers. Amazing. And I'd be like, I was too depressed to get in the cold shower. You know, I touched the waters freezing. I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. I was just so kind of weak in that moment. 
And actually I did my first cold shower from start to finish on a microdose of mushrooms. And I, you know, I took some mushrooms, I got in the shower and I was like, you know, I like fucking like let out a Viking call and like got in there. And this was like a turning point for me as well. You know, um, I think getting into like substances that can help you learn to help yourself better on your own, like even psychedelics can be dangerous if you just try to be high all the time. Right. I, I think the goal of any kind of a substance that changes your consciousness or any kind of conscious changing experience, you can get that from meditation, from many things that don't require a substance is to like take what you learned and put it into your life. You know, it's the difference between like, okay, I had an experience. It was different. Now, what did I learn from it? How can I implement it versus just trying to stay in the experience all the time, which is almost like a form of escapism. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And I'll be honest, you're inspiring me to make a lot of changes to uh, my life. Uh, honestly, man, because like I have been in a in a phase, in a state for probably since COVID started, because I was like, why not? Everybody's inside anyways, to where it's like Adderall in the morning because I have the prescription and then weed uh, at night, sometimes throughout the day, just to, I don't know, like spike my state a little bit. And it's like, it's like I didn't start there, you know, and it, it wasn't for the, I don't think it, I don't even think it started with, I need to feel better. I, I just feel so terrible right now. Like it wasn't like one of those things. I think it was just because, uh, like your buddy that you brought up, it's like, why not? I work from home. I have my own business. I can do what I want. Um, and then I have noticed during the last year or so that I have had some of those high highs and then some of those low lows. And I'm starting to wonder, oh shit, like maybe it is probably just with the substance, substances alone. I don't even know that I would class myself, classify myself as someone who's abusing, but definitely regular use where um, I can, like what you're saying makes logical sense. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work that guys have to do. Like nobody tells you about society kind of encourages you not to do it. And I don't say guys have to do it, but like stuff that guys can do that will make them happier often comes with like an initial discomfort, you know, like think about quitting porn. Most guys at some point will realize that porn makes them less happy but they're so used to it and it's so easily available. And like, it's like, really, I'm going to stop doing this. Like no one's making me stop doing it. I could do it so easily anytime I want, but I'm just going to choose to stop. But you know, whether it's quitting smoking, quitting porn, you know, not drinking so regularly, not smoking weed so regularly, like I don't want to demonize anything, but anything that you do to an amount, like everything has a ratio, right? The dose makes the poison. If you're doing something so often that it's making you really unhappy or it's, making you somewhat unhappy, it could be worth looking at. I mean, there's no, there are a few substances that you really want to do all the time. And we usually call those supplements, right? Like something you want to take every single day, but you know, many things have uh, when they're put to their place, it, it's okay. It just, you know, some people have more addictive personalities. Some people feel more dependent, they need more crutches and that can be limiting. But uh, I want to be careful not kind of project my own what's worked for me onto you because obviously you're a, a unique uh, human being. I, uh, there's a book by Stephen Kotler called The Art of Impossible. And he has another one called Stealing Fire. And he talks a lot about like, you know, microdosing and like finding the sweet spot with like nootropics and stuff. And you know, you've probably heard about biohacking. I have some friends who are pretty successful, you know, who, who do smoke marijuana occasionally or vape it or whatever. But it's all about finding what works for you. 
You know, like I have a friend who's an entrepreneur and he does like a bike ride and like yoga and does like a little bit of THC. And for him that works, but I don't know how often he's doing it. I have loads of guys in my program who are smoking weed every day and they really want to stop, you know, or they came to my program in that situation. And now they've changed their relationship and they're making more money and they're happier. So you got to find what's right for you. It's no, I don't want to give you any kind of dogmatic answer, but the important thing to know is that you don't need anything. Like if you wanted to start fasting tomorrow and not eat food for 10 days, you could do it, you know? So mm -hmm. you, you certainly, you don't know the role something's playing in your life until you kind of try without it. And I found elimination to be super helpful. You know, you give something yeah. up for a while and then you can make a more conscious choice about the role it's going to play in your life. But uh, to give anything up, you have to know what need it was meeting for you and how you're going to meet that need instead because humans will always find a way to meet their needs. And if marijuana was like a way to relax and then you take it away and you don't have a way to relax, anxious you is going to need a way to relax. You know what I mean? Yeah. So do you recommend, you know, like that guy in your group, for example, for example, who um, won that big poker tournament, do you recommend um, like cold Turkey, like stopping cold Turkey, or is it kind of like one of those things where you wean yourself off? Like, that moment where you had a jar of Adderall, but you were like, this is all I got. Did you like wean yourself off or did you just stop? So for me with the Adderall, I kind of, I prided myself on having like my last 10 pills or whatever in that pharmacy thing for years and not touching it. You know, mm. like I was like, this is self-control. I can have it. I don't use it. Um, but when I coached my first client on, on quitting Adderall, I was kind of like, if I was you, you know, like you can choose what to do what you want. This is how I did it. But in retrospect, dumping it down the toilet would have been like a more strong stance. You know, if you want to, if you break up with a girl, what's better to like keep her pictures or like kind of, it depends how the breakup is, but you know what I mean? Like you got to make a statement to yourself. Um, so I think there's a lot of books on addiction that can help. Uh, one of the best books on addiction is the easy way to stop smoking by Alan Carr anything Alan Carr writes about addiction is going to be like the best book on that, on the addiction that I know of. I mean, I've read a lot like Gabor Mate and other people who I respect a lot, but for quitting cigarettes, uh, the easy way by Alan Carr for quitting alcohol, the easy way to stop drinking by Alan Carr. Um, I don't, I don't, I didn't quit drinking completely, but I used to drink more than I drink now. And mm. what I found is for drinking say, which was the kind of what I used to mitigate anxiety on a semi-regular basis. If I decided I'm not drinking for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, it's like the decision is pre-made. If I say it, if I say it on my on a podcast or if I say it on Instagram to my followers, like I don't think about it anymore. When somebody offers me like the answer is just no, because I've decided it's very hard to wean yourself off something or like kind of take the halfway in, halfway out approach because there's so much indecision, which just causes more anxiety. And if the thing is something that helps the anxiety, it's going to be really difficult. So, you know, what I would recommend is maybe saying, okay, for 30 days, I'm going to go without this thing. And then I'm going to have a, like a meeting with myself or maybe with a coach or whoever, but I'm going to think about like, how did I find the experience of living without this? And what do I think is the optimal ratio for this substance in my life? If at all, I mean, you can do this with people. You can do this with people in your life. You think we're taking too much of your energy. You can do this with anything that you're not sure if it's in the right proportion of importance and significance in your life. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
I think I had another question, but then we kind of got on that whole, uh, that whole, uh, addiction tangent, but it was like, I mean, it, it was, it was relevant for sure. Um, you mind if I kind of shift gears here to, to poker, your poker experience? Yeah, I don't mind at all. Okay, cool. So how old were you when you got into playing poker? I was 18. Uh, I got invited to play in like a $5 cash game by my high school friends. Or maybe I was 17. Yeah, 17. My senior year. What year was this? You're trying to make me feel old? It was 2000 and, uh, 2003. Okay. You're, so you're, you're a similar generation to me. So like if your senior year was like 2003, I started high school in 2004. That was like when poker got real big, huh? Yeah, that was like uh, Chris Moneymaker. I, I think that might have been 2003 or maybe it was 2004 or five. But that, yeah. that was, I mean, a guy with the last name Moneymaker winning the main event for $2 million when he's a part-time player. I, that just, it was nuts, you know? Yeah. That w- I think that was actually the poker tournament that got me and my friends into it as well. Um, so, like, I started playing, like, $1 games when I was uh, uh, in eighth grade. And then that carried on probably to my junior year of high school where it went all the way up to like five, 10, $20 games. Um, and then I kind of just stopped after that. Um, I'm not sure why, but I was like, I was addicted to it. You know, I loved playing poker. We would always play every weekend. And it, like for me, I would always get like the third place. So I just like win my money back. But for mm-hmm. me, like if I could get in a tournament with like 20 guys of who are like people who got, I go to school with, but I'm consistently top three. Um, I was like, dang, you know, this is, this is good. And so that was probably my first also experience into like personal development and reading books and, um, uh, trying to improve. Cause I remember I bought a, a book from Walmart that I saw on like the shelf. It was by Phil Helmuth. Do you know that guy? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And um, he was talking about like the different archetypes of the players at the table. You got the Eagle, Eagle the you got Rock. the Joker. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I read this. You, you read that book? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't read it now to become a good poker player, but I mean, you know, I, I read that, I think in like 2005. Okay. Um, so yeah. Why, why do you think it's not a good poker book now? I mean, it depends on where you're at. It's, I mean, I'm surrounded a lot by like the high stakes online world, which has kind mm-hmm. of advanced a lot using software and algorithms and like machine learning and simulations to like understand the correct way to play. So it just seems like pretty rudimentary to put people into these kind of boxes. That said mm-hmm. though, people are still humans. And I actually recently uh, was discussing with another poker mindset coach and he was saying one of his most successful clients still uses four basic player notes that are very similar to Phil Helmuth's books, you know, um, you know, tight reg, loose reg, fish, and like something out like passive fish, aggro fish, uh, knit reg and good reg. And knit means like really tight. They don't play much hands. So, I mean, to be honest, mm-hmm. those are the same notes that Phil had and, and Phil Helmuth is still like one of the most wildly successful poker players. I mean, I definitely wouldn't bet on him heads up against one of the math wizards but I would take him versus a math wizard in like a big field tournament against a lot of recreationals. Like he knows how to play against recreational players better than probably anybody. Yeah. Would you like, my impression of him was he was always the type of guy who had no, no control on his emotions. Like he was so reactive to the things going on. Did you get the same vibe? I have no idea if it's real or if it's a character. I mean, I've met him in real life. He's super tall. Um, I mean, 
he's just very extravagant person. And it's really hard to tell how much of it is like an image he created. And has he like, does he know the difference between the image and himself? Or is there one? It, does he just love to play this character? Is he like that all the time? I don't know him well enough to speculate, to be honest. But uh, I, yeah, I, I really just don't know if those reactions are real or not, or if they're sometimes real. And now he got a reputation for it. He just does it because almost like people expect him to, you know, if he, if he wouldn't complain, they'd be like, oh, I didn't get the Phil Helmuth experience. He didn't berate me, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, based on strategy and stuff, uh, how do you know when to hold them and when to fold them? This is going to apply to poker and in life. Well, I think the most important thing when it comes to holding and folding is not chasing losses, right? Um, well, you got to fold when you're beat, right? That, that's what it comes down to. No one to hold them, no one to fold them. Like when your equity is positive, like from this moment forward, I should hold, right? Whether it's a, an investment, a business decision, a relationship with a partner or a friend or whoever, like if the graph goes up from here, if this is going to be a profitable or, you know, life value positive investment, I want to continue. If it's not, it doesn't matter how much money is already in the pot. Like if the guy has you beat, it doesn't matter. It's a million dollar pot. If you call, you just lose a little bit more. You know, if you bought uh, some investment and now it's in the gutter and it's not going to return because it was just a bad investment, or if you're in a relationship and you don't like your partner, but you've been together for two years, you know, like these, this is what they call like sunk cost fallacy, right? And this is the big thing. People have attachment, so they can't let go. And to be really good at poker or investing, you kind of need a little bit of ruthlessness. Like when you realize it's no longer good, you got to be able to cut the cord because otherwise you cause yourself a lot of pain. You cause yourself a lot of pain making bad investments because you made bad investments in the past. And if you can just accept the present moment, like this is where we are now. What makes sense from here forward? Because there, there is no past. You know, it's just a story you tell yourself. That's uh, how you know when to hold them and when to fold them. Um, one of the interesting terms you said there was sunk cost fallacy. Um, one of the only times I've ever heard someone tell me that was probably some of the most prof profound advice I'd ever gotten. And honestly, it was a it was a turning point in my life for sure. Uh, do you know who Jason Capital is, by the way? Yeah, I do. Um, so I was like, I was like at his house when he lived in Hollywood um, for a little event he was doing. He was like recording a program and I was like in the audience or whatever. Um, and afterwards he was like, okay, so we're going to do a little Q and A. So we'll go around the room. You can ask me any question and then we'll turn this into a bonus for my program or whatever. And so my question to him, um, I'm glad I asked it because sometimes, you know, my mentality going into it, I realized sometimes Sometimes you just need someone else to 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 say it out loud so you can feel good about giving yourself permission to drop the sunk cost. Um, but at the time I was in dental school, um, already like a year in, I'd already passed my part one of the boards. There's two parts to become like a full blown dentist doctor, and uh, but I was just now learning about this whole world of like online marketing. And for me at the time, I was like super into picking up women, personal development. Um, and I wasn't on, uh, you know, marijuana or Adderall at the time. I was pretty clean cut and straight edge. Um, this is probably like 2013, 2014. The worst side, the only thing I would do is like drink if I was going out and stuff. Um, and so when I went there, I was already like 
in the middle of writing an ebook that I had started writing called the magnetic personality formula, which I still sell to this day. Um, but I, I like, I wasn't sleeping at all while I was in dental school. Cause I was keeping my grades up, which is a full-time job at dental school. And I was trying to build an online business. I had like 10 people on my email list. I was writing daily emails to these 10 people. Um, and I asked him like, what do you think I should do? <laughs> and he said, exactly. He said that term, he goes, you know what a sunk cost fallacy is? And, you know, he explained like, you know, it's when you, when you know, it's not the right path for you, you just got to drop it because, and treat it like a sunk cost. Um, and he kind of explained it in better ways, more kind of like what you did. Um, and for me, it was like permission, like a weight lifted off my, my shoulders. Like, I can, I can drop out of dental school and worst case, I could always go back. Right. Um, and you know, luckily, you know, without that moment, I probably wouldn't even be on this, this call today because I probably would have stayed in dental school if nobody gave me the permission. And I, maybe I would have given myself permission eventually, but, um, that was like a defining moment for me when, when he told me that. Right. Uh, and so I don't know, in retrospect, I wonder like in anything in life, how do you know it's a sunk cost? Like for me, realistically, was dental school a sunk cost? Probably not. I probably would have been successful at whatever I did. But like when I think about like the stock market specifically, you know, if I put money into one crypto, but I believe in it and I think, okay, it'll come around, I'll come around. One day, maybe it could come around. But at what point do you say this is a sunk cost? I think I've got uh, a sentence that'll help you with this question. This is something I heard from Sam Ovens, who's a consulting coach, uh, he's a really smart guy. And this basically sums up some cost fallacy is stop now what you would not start. So like if you're in dental school and you don't want to be a dentist, you know, say like, okay, if there was a, you're, you're in your third year of dental school, right? There's one more year left. If there was a one year program to become a dentist, but you don't want to be a dentist, would you take that one year program to become a dentist? I'm assuming it's normally four years, right? Probably not because you don't want to be a dentist. So it doesn't matter that you've done three years toward being a dentist because you don't want to be a dentist. Um, When it comes to crypto, it's a little bit different, but um, obviously a trading strategy is like only sell things above what you bought them for and you should make money. But um, that's kind of just trying to simplify things and it does work for some people. But generally, if you're looking at your portfolio and you're looking at a currency, and you wouldn't buy it at the current price minus the fees, right? Um, Then you shouldn't be holding it. Like if you're holding something, it's because you think it's worth buying at this current price. Um, The fees are pretty small, you know? So, I mean, yes, you will kind of cost yourself quite a bit of money if you're constantly paying fees because you're switching things around too much. Um, And impatience does cause people a lot of problems. You have to be able to, again, move through your emotions. Because most of the time people make their investment decisions what do we say? They buy the top, they sell the bottom, they panic sell and they FOMO in. What's driving this? Is it logic? Are they being the intelligent investor and saying, mm, well, I don't think Dogecoin is a buy at 70 cents. So I'm going to, you know, no, they're like, oh, I want a Lambo. You know, if I make a lot of money in Bitcoin, then girls will like me. You know, it's, it's this kind of like mentality is fueling their decision. So you have to be able to do what we talked about in the beginning of this podcast, which is like, recognize, oh, I'm feeling fear of missing out. And the guys that I work with and the guys that we talk investments with, they don't say like, oh yeah, I, I never feel emotional. They'll be like, oh yeah, I was feeling a lot of FOMO around this coin. So, uh, you know, I was thinking about buying it. Like, do you think it's a good investment? 
because they recognize like I might need someone else's opinion here because I'm feeling emotional. So I don't know if my decision-making is so good right now. Um, and those kind of like that network, like being able to talk with Jason, he's not emotional about the three years of dental school that you did. You are. So you are attached to like this vision of yourself as a dentist and like how your parents feel about you because you've been going through and like sticking with a program and like how you feel about your identity because you're hustling hard on the, you know, in the nights and the evenings, but you're also doing dental school. You have all these attachments to like what you're doing and how it makes you feel about yourself. He has none of that. He's just like, bro, do you want to be a dentist? No. All right. Easy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stop now if you would not start. I wrote that down. Um, that's, uh, that's a really good one. Um, and I, I totally relate to that. Like everybody's talking about Dogecoin. I'm like, but Dogecoin already blew up. I don't want to buy Dogecoin right now. Um, but I'm like relatively new to, to crypto or just like investing ironically. And I have that book, the intelligent investor sitting on my desk. And again, that's like one of those books that's been sitting here, but I just haven't taken the time to block out an hour and just be like, I'm going to read this book for an hour, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. So next question is, do you personally ever chase the straight or the flush? I mean, this question like is a, a little bit funny, I guess, because I guess like, do I play with a, a draw? Of course. Right. Like it depends on the odds. So, I mean, when you say chasing, I kind of insinuate that you mean like hoping to get lucky more than I should. Uh, which I would say I try not to, right? Like if I know my odds of hitting my flush are like, I don't know, 18% on the, or 20% to go to the river and my odds aren't that good. Like, you know, the guy bet pot and I need to hit 33% and I think he's going to fold the river. If I make my flush, I'm not going to get any additional money. Then no, I don't like chase my flush. Cause that's like, if I told you like, let's flip a coin and it's going to be heads 55% and tails 45, do you want to bet even money? You'd say no. Like if my odds of hitting my flush or my straight aren't good enough to justify what I have to pay to do it, then I fold. And if they are positive, then I, I chase it. Like, and it comes down to like expected value, right? If the EV is worth the, the investment and you can make this kind of calculation about everything in your life, you know, do you chase a, a difficult girl that you're trying to reach, right? Well, like what's the EV of my time versus like dealing with this person? Usually not worth it. But in uh, in investments and in, in poker, it's just like, does it have a positive expectation? And same thing, it doesn't matter that I called the bet on the flop with my flush draw. It made sense on the flop to call, but on the turn, you know, no sunk costs. It's like the bet is too big. It's not worth it. So I just fold because if I make that call a million times, I'm losing money on average. And I play to yeah. win the game. I don't play to get lucky. I play to win 999 times out of a thousand. Does that make sense? Like mm -hmm. if we play my life as a poker player, I want to be a winning poker player. The majority of cases, not just when I win the main event, you know? Mm. I feel like that's one of the things that I'm realizing from this conversation is like, with my limited experience of poker playing and the few people who I know who actually do play poker, um, I would say of the people that I know, I'm probably one of the better ones just because when I do, I tend to like at least win, if not finish in the top three, but I don't play that often, maybe like once or twice every few months. Um, and I don't, I wouldn't even consider myself a great poker player because the only time I went to the 
casino to actually put down money. I lost $300 on like cash games. Um, and I was probably the bum or whatever you called it, uh, in that case. But I guess what I'm thinking about is like, I guess what I'm realizing is you're thinking long-term you're thinking, how do I, how do I come out ahead over the course of time? And I, from what it sounds like, it, does it usually for you come down to just like, what are the numbers here? What is, what are my odds? Yeah. I mean, if you're in a pot and like you have a draw, you, there's like an, a relatively simple calculation you can do how often I'm going to make my draw. And then you add how much do I have to pay to try and hit it? You know, it's like the, the casino spreads blackjack because you're like a 49 and a half percent uh, underdog to their 51 or 50.5 percent. And they yeah. make infinite amount of money because they just spread it against everybody. And you may win, you may lose, but like you're playing a game where like in the long run, people lose to the casino. So the casino doesn't care. Um, mm. And as a professional poker player, you're kind of trying to be the casino. You know, like I'm the one who puts my money in as a favorite. And as long as I do that, I really don't care if I win or lose because that's just like attaching emotion to things I'd prefer not to attach emotion to. So yeah. as a recreational, you go to the casino, I would like to win today. As a poker player, if you say I would like to win today, you're going to be disappointed, you know, 50% of the time. So better to say, I would like to play well today, focus well, and I'm pretty sure at the end of the month, my bank account's going to be looking better. You know what I mean? It's, it's easier to think long-term. When you think short-term, it's like you just end up getting upset way more often than was necessary. Yeah. In the moment, are you actually like in your head calculating odds and you go, okay, I got about a 65% here or I got a 10% here. Is that something that you can do with like, because I mean, realistically, you only have two cards that you're looking at and then maybe three or four cards on the table because um, you don't know, necessarily know what the other people have, right? Well, I can teach you a very simple trip, trick. Usually, like if you know how many outs you have, like say you have a flush draw, you have two hearts, there's two on the board, there's nine left because there's 13 hearts, right? So the odds and then, there, you know, the cards that you know about are the two cards in your hand and the three on the board. And there's 52 cards in the deck. So your odds of the next card being a heart is nine out of like 47. Because there's 47 cards that you don't know where they are. And then nine of those cards are hearts. Nine out of 47, you can, it's like kind of nine out of 50. So it's like nine out of 50 would be 18 out of 100. So your odds of hitting it on the next card is like one in 18. You basically take the number of cards you think will make you win and you double it. And that's your odds of hitting it. And if you have two cards to come, you double it and multiply, like multiply by two. So if it's on the flop, you know, you got nine out of 47. It's technically nine out of 47 and then nine out of 46 if you didn't hit it. But it's close enough to like nine out of 50, nine out of 50. You got like 36% chance, you know, um, mm. with two cards to come and 18% chance with one card to come. I think it's, it's technically a little bit off. It's off by like one or 2%. But it's close enough. Yeah. If you're going to straight draw, you have eight outs, you know, so 16%, 32%. If you got a flush draw, you know, if you have, uh, you know, if you have pocket fours and the guy has uh, kings and you need to hit a four, you got two outs, you know, you got 4% to hit it on the turn, 4% for the river. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that a calculation that you've done so much that you're able to do it in the moment in the heat of the game? Yeah. I mean, this, this is like a, a trick for quickly counting your outs, you know, that I think I probably learned in like a Phil Hellmuth style poker book, like something you can do at the casino, just like 
okay, you know, eight cards make a straight for me, that's 16% on the next card, you know, or nine cards make a flush for me, that's 18% on the next card. Technically doing the math though, away from the table will help you. Like say you raised pre-flop and the guy re-raises all in, you got to look at how many, you know, you got to think about all the different hands he could have and like, oh, you got ace, ace, jack. What is ace, jack's equity versus a range of like pocket sixes or better, ace, 10 yeah. suited, ace, jack offsuit and like king, queen. And now I got to like put that into a calculator and see what it says. And you start to do spots like that with a calculator. This is like where poker gets like professional, you know, that people note in their database, all these hands that came up and they didn't know what to do. And then they look back at it with like an actual calculator and put in all the different hands their opponent could have had and the chips that were in the pot. And they look at how much equity they had versus all those possibilities. And they start to train their mind to kind of just know like, oh, this is a fold. Like in game, you're not doing all that math. In game, you've done enough of math calculations like that that you just kind of know. Like, eh, mm. no, this is going to be a fold. I think I would call ace queen, I fold ace jack. You know what I mean? Or like I would call ace jack suited, I fold ace jack off suit. You just kind of, we call them pips, but like the little differences, you know, between like, yeah, this I would go with, this I wouldn't. You know, this is a shove, this is a fold. Got it. Um, so I guess the, you know, getting back onto the original question was like, one situation that I'm thinking of is like, if I'm, if I'm playing poker and I'm in this hand and maybe I flop a flush draw and I know I have like a, a king high flush or an ace high flush, if I have two more cards left to come and let's say I'm like the leading, leading the, this round of betting and I, and I put some money in now, I guess in a way I, that could go into like me feeling more committed when it could be a sunk cost later on down the road. But do you ever find yourself in a position where you've been the one to place the bet on the table because you had a flush draw and then the turn, you don't get the flush. Do you stay in there? Um, if people are staying in or if it's like, you feel like you can bluff this guy, like do you kind of make a judgment call based on that? Cause I, I would assume that sometimes bluffing doesn't, it like directly flies in the face of the odds, right? So there's a, kind of a couple things there. Uh, for starters, it matters how much money is in the pot and how much money you have. Because say the pot is $100 and you have $50 more, you can't really make a big mistake getting it in on the flop with your flush draw because you're going to hit 36% of the time and win the pot. And you'll be getting, you know, three to one on your money. Conversely, if you had $100 and the pot was only a dollar, it'd be pretty bad for me to put up $100 and you to put up $100 and we're playing for $201 and you're only going to win 36% of the time. So, you know, the ratio of how much additional money is going in to what was already there is going to determine how much you want to fight for that pot. Now, also how many opponents are in the hand, right? Like it's harder to bluff multiple people and you need to, you need to represent a stronger hand. So like if you, um, if I bet with a flush draw on the flop and a heads up pot, and then I don't hit on the turn, I'm probably going to bet because I don't want to, I mean, not always, it depends on the turn card is, but I have fold equity. So yeah, I might win because the river is a flush, but I might win right now because he folds. But if I check, he's definitely not going to fold, right? So you kind of want to be the aggressor with your draws because you can win two ways by hitting your draw or by making them fold. Whereas when you check and you call with your draw, you literally only get to win if you hit. So you need to be getting the right odds, but you can have slightly worse odds when you also have what we call fold equity, like a chance that your opponent folds. Now, the thing that tricks up a lot of players 
is what do people do when they get to the river with a missed flush draw? Because the recreational, you know, the gambler is like, well, I can only win if I bet. So they're going to bluff a lot because they think they have to bluff. But actually, flush draws are not usually the greatest hands to bluff with on the river because this is a concept that may seem a little advanced, but it's not so complicated. Basically, like you block your opponent having a flush draw, which is a hand he will always fold. So if I have two hearts that didn't pair the board in my hand, that's two less hearts my opponent could have been calling with me with that now he would fold because he has nothing. So it's mm. more likely when, my, when I have a missed flush draw that my opponent has a hand that's not a flush draw. And he's going to know a flush draw missed, so he's going to have a reason to call on the river. So often when you do have a flush draw and you miss, unless there's another hand you can realistically represent, it's a decent hand to give up. And people don't like giving up because of sunk cost fallacy. They got to the river. There's money in the pot. I want to win that pot. They're thinking short term. They're not thinking long term that if I put an extra $50 in on this river with my flush draw and he calls, like that $200 that's in the pot, you already lost because you didn't hit your flush. But if you put in $50 more, you lost $250 instead of $200. And if every time you could have lost $200, you lost $250 instead, that's an extra 50 off your win rate. You know, if that comes up four or five times in a, in a week, that's $250 less in your bank account because you bluffed all your missed flush draws and got called. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. And uh, it connects the, the long-term thinking in there. Um, and it's like, I mean, as you were walking me through that, I'm probably going to have to re-listen to that part again um, just to make sure that sinks in. But it's like, it is crazy how the little, those little things where the sunk cost fallacy and your eagerness to be aggressive over time logically just makes you come out less ahead more often than not. And it's like, I didn't realize how many levels there were to consider. It's like, yes, I'm chasing the, sh the flush. Yes, I'm kind of pot committed. But at the same time, what hand does, what hand am I representing? What hand could he likely have? What hand does he think I could be representing? Um, and then just realizing it's better for me to fold. I didn't, I guess it was, it was crazy how many levels to that process there were. Um, do you feel like a guy, so in general, like, do you feel like if you're, I don't know, is that something that you as a professional poker player, you're, if you were on the opposite side and someone's being the aggressor to you, and let's say you don't even, like logically, maybe he's like chasing a flush in the situation we we said. Is that something you'll be able to sniff out pretty easily as a pro poker player? Well, I play a lot on the internet. So on the internet, you don't have as much information. Like if, if some guy acts differently when he has a draw, that's a huge advantage to have. Like he acts differently when he has a, a pair versus a draw. But when you're faced with a bet, like on the computer, you kind of have to think about all the bet, all the all the hands he could have, like he might have a flush draw, he might have an over pair, he might have top pair, you know, like he might have a pure bluff. And I'm trying to think how my hand that I have does against his whole range of hands, or even how all the hands that I could have interact with all the hands that he could have and which ones I need to continue and which ones I need to, to let go of. So it gets like quite complicated. Um, obviously if someone has a like what we call like a tell, like a bet sizing tell, they bet bigger with a flush draw and smaller with a pair. Like that kind of information is huge and it's really available all the time, especially in live poker. People don't realize how face up they play when they, you know, 
do what is best for their hand in the moment rather than thinking about what's best for their overall strategy. You know, like I may make a bet with my flush draw that's not the exact size I want to bet, but it's because it's the same size I'm going to bet with a bunch of other hands and it makes it way harder for you to know what hand I have. My flush draw might want to bet really big to try to pressure you to fold, but I want to make sure that when I get to the river, I could still have top pair and top pair wouldn't bet so big or a set, you know what I mean? So mm. it, it, the, I mean, the more information your opponent gives you, like the easier it's going to be for sniff out how he's playing. And the more like attention to detail you have, like the more hands you observe and get to show down and the more experience you have, you know, I mean, I've been around poker for, yeah, what is it? We said 2003, right? So I've been around poker for 18 years. It's not a surprise that uh, a lot of these things, you know, I don't even realize how naturally they kind of come to me now after 18 years of playing poker and thinking about poker. Mm, I see. Um, you know, speaking, cause you, you mentioned like you have less information online. Is there a strategy that you found to bluffing is bluffing something that you tend to do very much of, um, or do you play very conservatively yourself? Um, well, I mean, I just try to play the way I think is going to make the most money and bluffing is like definitely a part of that strategy. Um, there are certain players who we call them like a calling station. Like they just don't like to fold. Like the guy we talked about who like, they know they lose, but they call anyway. You should just never bluff that guy. Like just, okay, he doesn't fold. So I don't bluff. And then there's people that overfold. They like their nits. Um, they only call if they have a really strong hand, you should like basically always bluff them. And like when you're playing as good players, you can't have frequencies of hundred percent and zero. You need to be a bit more like, mathematical than that because they're going to bluff sub catch sometimes they're going to fold sometimes you need to like have a balanced strategy as we say but when you're playing against recreationals you're playing a local casino against your friends you know you can use those four tags like who's really tight okay we bluff that guy who's like really crazy okay we don't bluff that guy you know what i mean and it, you yeah. know maybe it shouldn't be a hundred percent but you bluff the guy who's tight a lot more often than you bluff the guy who doesn't really fold you know trying to yeah. bluff a guy who doesn't fold off a pair is is just going to cost you money. Mm. Would you say the strategy, the, the, the textbook strategy is to not try to fit into one of those categories, or is there a category that tends to do better over time? Well, it matters a lot against who you're playing against, right? Um, so the mathematical approach of being super balanced and playing perfectly and no one can get a read on you. And like you have the correct frequency and ratio of bluffs and value hands and the correct sizings and all that stuff. That's a strategy. It's like impossible to beat. So if somebody can play that all the time, they can beat anybody. So a lot of people prefer to study that strategy because then they can just always be a winner in any games they play. But if you go to like a local home game with your friends and they're drinking and hanging out and playing and they're making really obvious plays, like you know what they're telling you what they have with their bet size or with their body language. And you're just like, well, I don't bluff this hand because it's not a like you're playing really ABC like in the box robotic. You're just missing a ton of opportunity. You're like missing the low hanging fruit. So it's interesting because the best poker players in the world are playing against the other best poker players in the world and trying to play perfectly. But the poker mm. players who make the most money are playing super out of line against other people also playing super out of line. Does that make sense? What do you mean out of line? Out of line, like very far from what like we would mathematically conclude as like the optimal strategy. Cause there's like a, like if you had two robots playing against each other, they would eventually come to an equilibrium where they played like every hand a certain way. And there's, they've already done like an AI versus humans match. 
and they they did like a rematch and the, they did the first one like many years ago and the humans won by a small margin they did the rematch and the robot destroyed the humans like absolutely wrecked them over like a big sample so like mm -hmm. uh ai is developing really quickly and ai can play poker better than people so huh. people now try to emulate the ai and do what try to understand why the ai does what it does and do what that does and that's like what's going on at the highest levels of poker and that's yeah. but the thing is if you brought that kind of game into your local casino you you might just do stuff you don't need to do you know you may not need to balance and and like you know bluff certain hands like you can just be more we say exploitable but basically adapt to the specific situation you're in because your opponents you're not going to see them a million times you just need to like make the right decision in the hand you're playing yeah no that totally makes sense um so uh, you know speaking of bluffing have you ever had or do you know do you know the quote i don't know john did i <laughs> do you know where that what movie that's from that's from rounders right yeah have you ever had a i don't know john did i moment <laughs> like in rounders i mean i definitely bluffed people you know in like uh yeah. big spots and like uh gotten away with it before like i think i played like a 5k online tournament last year and i, I don't know mm -hmm. I, I got like kind of kind of kind of out of line on the flop with like a like a check raise with like a I check raise a flop on a hand that with a hand that was good for my like a board that was good for my range and the opponent didn't fold and then I bet the turn and he still didn't fold and I like went all in on the river and to be honest I think my play is not very good I think like the guy knew like this doesn't make any sense like I wasn't really representing too many value hands mm. but it was like a five thousand dollar buy-in tournament and it was for all his chips and he like tanked for he like took like um you know, 90 seconds and, you know, I'm fucking sitting there like, please fold, please fold, please. Cause I don't want to yeah. punt off. You know, I, I don't want to like, you know, basically punt off with that $5,000. Right. So I, I've just taken this like really unconventional line, which probably I shouldn't have, and probably wasn't very good, but results oriented. Like he finally, like he, he, it's like his intuition knew that like he, like something was wrong, but he just like, couldn't make the hero call. Cause it was such a big spot. He was probably afraid of being wrong and like feeling stupid for calling down with a really weak hand. So he folded and I was like, you know, and I, you know, it was obvious from how long he took that he was kind of like, yeah, I don't know about this one, you know? And it was probably one of the bigger bluffs I ran in like, uh, in recent memory. Yeah. Have you, have you ever had a moment like that with a, with like a high profile professional poker player that like people in the, in the industry know this, who this guy is? Mm, I don't know. It's hard to think. Like, I don't play so much live, especially recently with COVID and everything, but I, I played against like, you know, Phil Ivey and Phil Hellmuth and some of these guys like in live tournaments. Like I played against Isaac Haxton, some of these like more famous players I played against in like the beginning of my career when I lived in Vegas and I played a lot of live tournaments. So I'm sure I had some you know, I had some big spots where like uh, stuff like that happened. Like I, you know, jam rivers or jam flops and guys that kind of tank for a while and fold and they're really unsure what I had. But um, a lot of that stuff was kind of a, a while ago. There's no like specific hand in memory that uh, mm. I don't have like a super cool story with any famous poker celebrity around uh, poker hands. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, I think I have two more questions for you around poker and then we can kind of wrap this thing up. So um, sure. the next question I have is, do you have a favorite hand, like a specific hand that is like your good luck charm? And obviously like pocket aces would be like anybody on the street would go, oh yeah, that's my favorite hand. But like, do you have like a 
non-conventional good hand that's like your favorite hand? I mean, my answer is aces, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I think anyone who tells you their favorite hand is not aces, like, I don't know. It's, uh, they, they don't have the right mindset for poker, you know what I mean? Okay. So it's like, you never want to be the guy who's relying on like lucky charms or like luck or anything like that. I mean, it depends what you're optimizing for. If you're optimizing to make money, your favorite hand should be aces. If you're optimizing to like, just have fun, you know, your favorite hand can be seven deuce. Cause when you bluff somebody with seven deuce and you show it, you see this all mm. the time. Like, I don't want to stereotype, but like the Asian guy at the casino, like, you know, throws seven deuce down and he's like bluffed you, you know, and that guy's not optimizing for money. He's optimizing for his entertainment and the entertainment of the other people at the table. Mm. Uh, I can think of a specific hand actually, it's quite funny. We played, uh, in a back room at a restaurant that I was at, it was like a Thai restaurant and they had, they invited us to play with them when they found out we we're all like professionals and we're playing with the owner of the restaurant. I don't remember. We we're playing like, you know, a few hundred dollars, uh, buy-in, right. Maybe a $200 buy-in. And I raised like queen Jack suited in the early position and a bunch of people call and Patrick Leonard, who's a very famous online player, uh, really, really talented player. Um, he, we were playing a game where like, if you won with seven, two, uh, you got to like, um, you got to like win money from everyone is basically a variant where if you win the hand with seven, two and nobody, nobody, uh, like if you win the hand with seven, two, you get like $10 from everybody. Mm. So it goes like raise, call, call, call the guy in the button, three bets, the small blind, like calls the three bet and he's the owner of the restaurant. He's like kind of the recreational, the whale or whatever. And then Patrick goes all in. And I'm like, okay, Patrick either has ace king or seven two because we're playing the seven two game, right? I fold, uh, everyone else folds down to the, the business owner. And he's like, all right, I call. And Patrick's like, oh my God, his face turns like totally red. He puts his head in his hands and he flips over and he has seven two, you know? And then the business owner guy, he flips over his hand. He has six three suited. Which is just insane because like when you go all in with seven high, trying to win like the, you know, trying to show everybody you can win a hand with the, you know, quote unquote worst hand in poker, you don't expect the guy to call you with six high. You know what I mean? Like that was just like legendary. And that guy who made the call with six high, he's optimizing for like, let's have fun. Let, you know, let's gamble. Let, you know what I mean? He's not optimizing for like, how can I win the most money from these guys? You know, he's in, he owns a restaurant, you know, like it does well, like he he's yeah. got money. So, I mean, if I was having fun playing poker, yeah, sure. I might try to, you know, open the six, five suited in early position or the, you know, play the, you know, three bet somebody with some hand I shouldn't and just like beat them just cause it's fun. Like when you're playing with your buddies and you're trying to get one over and like show them you bluffed them, that's kind of a different mentality. But if you're, you know, really trying to optimize for dollars one, then you kind of just want to be playing the best hands. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And it totally makes my strategy of, uh, five, eight suited my favorite hand, uh, you know, not, not so, not so hot in terms of the long-term play. Um, uh, all right. So last question, man, cause I feel like every poker player has had this. I know I have, um, what's your worst beat? Um, my worst beat was actually in crypto. Uh, I, was margin trading and I like, I was what does that long, mean, margin trading. Like I was leverage trading. So I had like a certain amount of money in my account and it's like, you can bet 
say you can bet 20 times the amount of money you have in your account, but then if you, if it, if you're 20% wrong, you lose everything. Or I guess it's like if you're 5% wrong, actually. Um, so like say you bet on the price, say you have one Bitcoin and Bitcoin's 50K. If Bitcoin goes to 55K, you make 5K. But if you leverage trade 20 Bitcoins at 50K and Bitcoin goes up 5K, you make 100K. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. But like if Bitcoin goes down 2.5K, since you're basically playing for 20 of them, you you would lose, well, I guess it didn't even have to go down that much. You would lose 20X the other direction as well. So mm. it doesn't have to move very much the wrong direction if you're betting on the price going up for you to lose your Bitcoin and have nothing, right? Yeah. But this is how people make and lose massive fortunes in, in the crypto space in very short amounts of time. It's one of the ways. And uh, yeah, I had longed, I was on a flight uh, to see my family and I had longed Bitcoin from like 15K to 16K back in like 2017. And I had a massive position and I'd made like 60K on this flight, which was absurd, right? Like I'm flying on a flight and I just like increased my you know, net worth by $60,000. Um, and then my sister was coming to pick me up at the airport. She was a little bit late. And I'm like watching the, I'm on BitMEX tethered to my cell phone. I'm like watching it and it starts to go the wrong way. And it start, I start to lose. I'm like, now, okay, now I'm only up 10K and now I'm break even, you know? And now by the time my sister arrives, I don't know, maybe I was down like four or 5K. And you know, I didn't want to be down four or 5K. I could have just been up 60 if I'd closed my laptop, you know? So I like stayed in the trade, you know? This is a sunk costs fallacy. I didn't want to lose 5K. I wanted to wait until it got back to even. Well, the market crashed 3K that day. Uh, it just like, there was some news in the Bloomberg or whatever, you know, some, some fear, uncertainty, doubt, people talking like, oh my God, like, you know, this is going to happen. Kind of like what happened recently with uh, Elon tweeting that like Bitcoin's bad for the uh, environment, right? It caused the, the cryptocurrency to crash, right? Some black swan event like that happened. There was some news and all of a sudden, like I found myself stuck like 250K, which is a massive amount of money to lose in a, in a day. And, uh, I ended up like closing my position, losing like 17 Bitcoin, which by today's prices is like, I don't know, $1.7 million. Dang. How long ago was this? Uh, like, I guess like three years ago. Oh, shoot. So for a day, three years ago, it shot up to 50? No, for a day, it went from 16 to 13. And I had bet a lot at 15 on the price going up and then oh. like continued to buy in more as the price went down. And the worst part about it is like, I ended up salvaging like a very small amount of money in the account, but I don't know if I had just let it ride, if I would have got liquidated or if it would have bounced back and I would have still had like, you know, a small loss the next day. Cause whenever the market moves erratically, it rebounds, you know what I mean? Like people are in a panic, they're all selling and then it rebounds. And like, the, I also had more money I could have put in the account to like allow myself to, you know, not get liquidated. But uh, the transaction fees were so high that I couldn't, and like the, the network was so clogged that I couldn't move it in time. So like, there was nothing I could really do. And yeah, I mean, like that was my worst beat. I basically lost like at the time, 250K in like an evening. And it was Christmas Eve. And I hadn't seen my family for like a year. And that was like the worst part. 
because like they hadn't seen me in like you know maybe 16 17 months and i arrive and i'm just like absolutely demoralized you know like absolutely like a ghost and, and it was very hard for me to like shake that for the week that i was there and like be present with my my mom and my sister and my family and uh taught me like a really valuable lesson i guess which is just like you know putting people first you know uh, i kind of almost felt like the universe is like teaching me a little bit of a lesson like what's really important because ultimately like you know if you spend all your life you know perusing over like charts and stuff and you're not present with your loved ones you know you can't buy back the time with your loved ones at the end of your life so that was a really key lesson for me and i you know this whole market cycle that we're in now this whole like crypto market cycle i learned so much from you know having that huge high and huge low in 2017 and uh playing it a lot smarter this time around you know uh i heard this quote like don't dig for gold sell shovels and that's kind of my approach like i'm not really looking to like get lucky and make a ton of money i'm more looking to like guarantee my success and uh play not not just play not to lose but you know prevent myself from getting wrecked because it's more important not to lose than it is to win the most because ultimately money can't buy most of the things that are truly important so like yeah okay i'll be happier to fly first class all the time and you know you know go to michelin star restaurants or i feel like it and whatever but that stuff ultimately isn't really going to make you happy but losing a ton of money getting really stressed blaming yourself all of this stuff that can definitely take away from you and your family's happiness mm, dang it's almost one of those lessons that you either have to learn by taking a psychedelic or just the hard way like that um man that's a that's a really good story so had you had you done had you if you had only held i'm assuming you didn't hold is that kind of the moral of the story if you held and you still held it to this day it'd be worth like you said one point something million well i didn't necessarily the, the trouble with holding was that i was leveraged so that means i was like gambling on the price so i couldn't actually just afford to be wrong does that make sense like if you have a hundred if you have okay you have a bitcoin you know, and the price goes down, you're, you're basically trading it at, at its actual value, right? So you have one Bitcoin at 50K. If it goes down to 25K, just wait till it's a 50K again, and you can sell it later. But if you leverage, if you're trading two Bitcoins, then if it goes to 25K, you've lost everything. Does that make sense? If you're gambling on, I mean, most people are nervous enough about buying Bitcoin, right? Because it's a very yeah. volatile investment. Maybe it's going to go up in price, maybe it's going to go down. For me and my like unique is leverage trading, is this where people talk about buying the dip? Is that the same type of strategy? And I mean, you can buy the dip without leverage. You can just buy Bitcoin when you think the price is low and sell it when you think it's high. Mm -hmm. But like leverage is buying more than you have the money to afford, you know, which quite obviously seems like a, not a great idea. But if you're right, you can make a lot of money. It, it's, um, most people find Bitcoin to be a very volatile asset. So gambling on the price of something super volatile for very high stakes is probably not the uh, most sound life strategy. But the main thing I would actually take away from it is understanding risk. Because none of, nothing I did would have been such a disaster if I'd played for less of a percentage of the money that I had. You know, um, if I had longed the price at 15k and it had gone to 13k and i'd been wrong but i had been doing that for like two three four percent of my net worth 
okay, I lost a bit of money, so what? Um, but I was trying to get somewhere because I thought somehow life was going to magically be better when I had, you know, a million dollars or $5 million or whatever, you know, I thought I was going to get somewhere and I was in an urgency to get that, like a neediness and, you know, neediness always repels the things you really want. Um, mm. So by trying to like shortcut the process and get lucky, I set myself back massively where, yeah, like if I had just not been in such a rush, I damn sure would have got there a lot quicker, you know? So, uh, yeah, being, just being more mature, you know, not, not being, don't FOMO, like being, I wasn't aware of what was driving me, my need for validation from the world. You know, it was hard for me at that point in my career to be a coach and surrounded by people who are more successful than me, you know, and like I'm coaching them, but they're all like, you know, super high stakes bosses and, you know, I'm okay. Like I, I kind of wanted to be at that high stakes, massive level, but I wasn't yet. And I was impatient because of that. Cause I knew that other people came to me for advice and help with their life and they're, you know, multimillionaires. So what about me? And instead of just being patient and being accepting my role and like helping some of these really successful people and learning from them, I was in a rush and being in a rush made me go much slower. Hmm. That's a, that's a really interesting insight. So if there's, if I can boil down what I've gotten out of this conversation with you on this podcast is, you know, uh, don't be so reliant on outside sources of validation. Um, be more in control of your emotions and your central nervous system and don't be so much in a rush and play the odds in your favor. Yeah. There we go. Well, if anybody wanted to check out your stuff, you know, I'll obviously link it to it below this video and podcast, but um, did you want to shout out like your Instagram or your website? Yeah, sure. So you can follow me on Instagram or add me on Facebook. My name is James Wittet, J-A-M-E-S-W-H-I-T-T-E-T. -T. You can also Google me. And uh, hopefully the first thing that pops up is my website, it's just jameswittet.com. So, uh, you know, all my social handles are the same. If you, uh, if you're interested in, you know, learning more about like, you know, what I do, feel free to follow and send a DM or comment on my stuff or whatever. And if you're interested in one-on-one -on -one coaching, if you're, uh, you know, anything I've said has resonated with you about, you know, addiction or like depression or, you know, managing your finance and risk and crypto. Like, you know, I've got a lot of resources um, in myself and in my, you know, I have like a team of coaches as well. So if any topics that we talked about today, sounds like something uh, you want to learn more about, or you would like some help with, you know, shoot me a message, tell me your story. I always love hearing from you guys. And just uh, most importantly, if you took something from this podcast, I'd love to know about it. Cause you know, came on here trying to hopefully give some value. And if uh, something I said has been helpful for you, I'd love to hear it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And next time you're in Arizona, you definitely have to come in studio. All right, bro. Sounds good. All right, man.